0: With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.
1: You've
2: tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit, From the
1: Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Colombia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier Richard McCall,
2: shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia.
1: Hi
0: there and welcome to Colombia Calling. I'm Emily Hart and this week I'll be talking to two global experts on women in peace building about their recent research into the pandemic and its effects on key actors in Colombia's peace process. As the fourth peak of COVID-19 cases fades, the dust is starting to settle on pandemic management worldwide, how lockdowns and movement restrictions affected populations. We'll be looking at peace builders and their crucial work and how Colombia's peace could suffer in the long term as a result, how it already may be suffering those effects. Last week, the Transitional Justice Tribunal, the HEP, announced a reactivation of conflict in various parts of the country. This week, the UN warned of levels of violence not seen in Colombia since 2014. Now, NGO, Frontline Defenders, have released their annual report on murders of human rights defenders. Colombia was not only host to more of those murders than any other country in the world, yet again, but accounted for nearly 40% of the global total of murders of human rights defenders in 2021. Catherine Ronderos is a Colombian researcher with over 15 years' experience working in the sector of women's rights, peace, security and development, from Colombia to Korea. For seven years, Catherine was the director of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom in Colombia and is now an independent consultant working for the UN. Agnieszka Feldutra Santos is an expert on gender and peace building who has worked in more than 15 countries. Formerly Director of Programs at the Global Network of Women Peace Builders, she is now researching her PhD. Today is International Women's Day, and we'll be discussing peace, gender, participation, and the pandemic in Colombia. But first, your top news stories for the week of March 7th, 2022. Congressional elections are coming up this week, Sunday, March 13th, with three coalitions presenting candidates, Pacto Histórico on the left, Centro Esperanza in the centre, and Equipo Colombia on the right. Polls from this week suggest that Pacto Histórico is ahead with 38%, followed by Equipo Colombia with 19% and Centro Esperanza with 15%. However, 28% of those polled had not decided which group to vote for. Many parts of Colombia are deemed high risk for violence or corruption around these elections, with warnings issued by both the Electoral Mission and the Human Rights Ombudsman. In regions where disputes between armed groups rage, the participation of communities is not guaranteed. Many are confined by ongoing violence or recently displaced and therefore unable to vote. In Catatumbo this week, a candidate for one of Colombia's peace seats, seats in Congress reserved for victims of conflict, was kidnapped for a few hours by the ELN guerrilla group. Yoad Ernesto Perez said that armed group approached him in the town of Tibu, Norte de Santander. This is the third case of violence against candidates for peace seats in the region. Meanwhile, the same group, the ELN, announced a ceasefire during the elections between the 10th and 15th of March to facilitate election day and the attendance of those who want to vote. Defence Minister Diego Molano said that he did not believe in the ceasefire. This week, the UN presented a report identifying 78 massacres, 72,000 displaced persons and 575 attacks on the press in 2021, levels of violence not seen since 2014. It has called for reinforcements of the integral presence of the state throughout the territory and compliance with the peace accords. Following these findings and their own investigation, the Special Justice Tribunal, the HEP, have ordered the government to stop delays and fully implement a national commission of security guarantees in order to dismantle criminal groups, against whom protection is severely lacking. The commission is composed of 15 members who must, as agreed in the peace accords, seek the construction of a public and criminal policy to dismantle criminal structures. This week, it has also emerged that Colombia was responsible for more murders of human rights defenders than any other country worldwide in 2021, accounting for nearly 40% of the global total, according to NGO Frontline Defenders. 59% of human rights defenders killed worldwide worked on defending land, environmental, and indigenous people's rights. One quarter of those murders were indigenous. Meanwhile, Colombia's president, Iván Duque, travels to Chiribiquete National Park with billionaire Jeff Bezos to show him the environmental advances of his government. In the last five years, almost half a million hectares of Chiribiquete Park to parts of Colombia's Amazon rainforest, as well as numerous indigenous groups and 20,000-year-old cave art, have been deforested. In its 2022 International Narcotics Control Strategy report, the U.S. Department of State has recommended that Colombia expand crop eradication, counter-narcotics operations and extradition of major drug traffickers. The document calls for the country to expand state presence and to reduce criminal activity and narcotics trafficking over the long term. Meanwhile, in Europe, more than 250 Colombians have left Ukraine, with around 20 still in the process of evacuation. Colombia has called on the International Criminal Court to investigate possible war crimes in Ukraine, the only Latin American country aside from Costa Rica to have done so. Those were your top stories for this week. So hello and welcome Agneska and Catherine. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Emily. Great to be here. Hi, everybody. Thank you. So let's dive in um, and let's get some of our, our key terms laid out. So when we talk about women peace builders, who are we talking about?
1: So I think maybe I'll go first, and Catherine, I, I'm sure you'll have so much to add. But um, it's it's a pretty broad term, actually, right? Because because peace is a broad term, and uh, the way that peace can be built or constructed or uh, you know created, uh, there are many diverse ways. From addressing what might be the root causes or or the kind of underlying um, reasons for the conflict for the war, through building trust uh, between people between. Commun- Communities, uh, uh, building um, under mutual understanding, building what we sometimes call uh, a culture of peace to more um, also immediate or tangible things such as uh, mediating conflict when, when they emerge, whether it's at the very localized level, uh, or whether it's participating in informal uh, peace negotiations. So there are many different things that women peace builders do, and so the term itself is, is broad. Uh, as well, it it refers to, to to all the women, the activists who are working towards a more peaceful community, a more peaceful country in in this variety of um of ways. Catherine, I don't know if you you'd agree or if you wanted to add something.
2: Yes, yes, it's in the same line. Um here in Colombia, we also have that discussion. Well, what is different between a woman human rights defender and a woman peace builder? And Mm -hmm. the answer is, it's complex, because uh, when you are defending rights, sometimes you defend Mm -hmm. specific rights, you know, the right water, the environment, um, you know. But when you're talking about peace building, it's a wider concept. You move beyond Mm -hmm. rights and then you move towards like looking solutions to problems and how to solve problems without violence. So some somehow separates a little bit from a human rights defender, a woman human rights defender, mm-hmm. which is a specific issue using a legal framework, using a specific language. But yes, Women Peace Builder, it, it could be broader, wider, but in a way, again, also specific in terms of preventing violence, preventing mm-hmm. death, right? And looking for mm. solutions more stable and sustainable than um, create other ways of solving future problems. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I mean, maybe to to set peace builders against against another peace actor. And Jesca and I were discussing this just a second ago. the The average peacekeeper in in Colombia is maybe. In his 20s, he's quite a low-ranking military guy. He's often not from the, the places that he's been sent. So how, how do we distinguish between peacekeepers and peace builders in this sense?
1: Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really, really important distinction to make. And, um, well, peacekeepers, like you said, they're usually military, sometimes also civilian, uh, but usually then coming from a police uh, or, or other kind of security-related background. Um, forces um, that are mandated in some way, whether it's by, by a peace agreement, as uh, maybe the case in Colombia or in other places, or sometimes by a UN resolution when, when they're the UN peacekeepers, the, the blue helmets that we sometimes hear about or see on the news. Um, and they can be women as well. Uh, in fact, uh, it is a kind of ongoing struggle or discussion as well on how to make this, this environment, right. A very heavily masculine militarized environment, more, you know, conducive to, to more women being a part of this. But when we talk about women peace builders, at least for me, I don't know how you feel, Catherine, it's, it's, it's slightly different. And the difference is, first of all, the, it's the use of the non-military means, right? So it's like I said, maybe addressing the root causes or like Catherine said, changing the conversation, changing the thinking about conflict so that it's resolved in a non-violent way uh, without the resort to to arms or to violence. Uh, and the other difference is that it's probably a longer term endeavor and it's not necessarily bracketed or defined by a document that's in place, right? Uh, whether it's a peace agreement. That's not to say women peace builders, especially in Colombia, play a key role in implementing that agreement, but their their work is, is broader than that. It often predates any negotiations that take place and often stays for, for much, much longer afterwards.
2: Hmm. I don't see personally, I don't think a military person is a peace builder. Is a peacekeeper. You know he's following the structures he's following a mandate to make sure that an agreement is fulfilled you know mm-hmm. implemented that doesn't make that person a peace builder he's a peacekeeper he's maintaining an agreement that was signed to keep peace peace builder is so much different involves a lot of um, interaction advocacy activities towards First, raising the problem, um, looking for solutions, um, providing ideas for solutions. Not all solutions for peace needs to happen through military forces. You know, we need to look for negotiations and civilians' participation and you know peaceful means. And then after that, for example, in Colombia, we don't have peacekeepers after signing the peace agreement. We have a political, we had a political mission by the UN, and now we have a verification mission that verifies <laughs> that um, the agreement is implemented. Yes, there are uh, military personnel par- part of the UN mission here, but they are not dressed as soldiers. They don't wear arms. They don't wear the blue helmet. Uh, they dress as civilians with the UN, you know, um, chaleco. Uh, that. So um, so there are two different things. Of course, people could mix them, but they're so mm-hmm. different. Um, but in Colombia, we don't have peacekeepers.
0: So in terms of the peace building, um, it seems that women are on the front line of a lot of that work, as well as being integrated into their communities in a very different way. So why are women so important in in peace building in general and in Colombia?
2: I mean, yes, women are important everywhere (laughs) to build, (laughs) not just in Colombia, and also in places where are not a conflict aren't, you know, recognized. Women are Mm -hmm. important everywhere in every scenario in our lives because, um, we are the center of the communities. We bring communities together. We keep communities together. And, and that's why it's been so difficult to bring um, the voices of women when we talk about peace, builder, peace building. You know, it's been only recently since um, the UN passed this resolution 1325 to address the, that importance of women in mm-hmm. peace. So it's from 2000. But the implementation has been very, very slow because women, um, we're still seen as, you know, um, caring after the families, caring after society. But when it comes to security, you know, this is a very male issue. This is our role. We're here. to. The men are here to protect the women. So usually, stay at home. We are dealing with security. So it's been very difficult for women to access those spaces to talk about peace and to talk about security because this is still seen as a male issue. So even though in Colombia women played a key role, women have been playing a key role for decades, but the spaces are very difficult. Their spaces are very narrow for women. But since this Mm -hmm. resolutions from the UN, you know, um, is helping us to be in those spaces that we were unable to be before. So when the peace negotiation came, um, the social movement, the women's social movement here was already established, was already a strong movement. We have already mm-hmm. developed um, critical thinking and solutions and way of working differently, and we, um, or, or also like what peace that we want, what do we mean by peace, it's not just, um, like uh, not having more arms is, is, more minds mm-hmm. is, is deeper than that and that's why it's a women have a critical role to play in peace because they bring or we bring a different conversations to the table that sometimes men don't see it don't understand it because um we are the ones that understand how society and communities can um, develop ways of uh, living together without uh, using violence to resolve the problems Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: maybe just to add to that to build on that last point right of of women peace builders and i must say i've had the, the privilege to to work with women peace builders not only in in colombia but in many many i would say 10 plus probably around 15 countries around the world and and it's It's very different, right? Women's movements can be very different, but there are certain things that are similar or the same. And one of them is what Catherine just said is that women know, they know their communities. They often know the conflict from inside out. They often know the, you know, the armed groups and the members of armed groups. And of course, men do as well. And women are, or well, at least I don't believe women are in any way naturally more peaceful or better suited to doing this kind of uh work than men, but it's just the, the place, right? The the socialization that we have and the uh the, the, the structure of the society in which we live, again around the world and you know, in, in on, on all continents I, I, I think probably, that, that makes women particularly well placed to see certain things within the community, right? To see certain needs, to see certain drivers of conflict and violence, and then to effectively address them. And what was very interesting is for us to see during the pandemic, during COVID-19, how that same expertise, that the same know-how, the same knowledge of their communities was something that, again, put women on the front line, but this time not of building peace, but of actually addressing the pandemic, uh, of, you know, knowing immediately what is needed, seeing immediately those longer-term uh, impacts that would be there right they women were saying from the very beginning violence will increase conflict will increase you need to pay attention to that you know the economic situation is going to you know you have to be really careful when you design those uh those uh, prevention me- measures uh they were the first ones when humanitarian organizations would distribute the Hygiene packages, and that we've seen with women in Kenya and the Philippines in Colombia, in Georgia, where women started doing their own packages with things that were omitted right in those initial packs because it was food and you know alcohol gel and masks. But what was not there was tampons and sanitary pads and pregnancy tests and condoms for women who are you know locked up and and often unfortunately also experiencing um, domestic abuse. So they just knew what was needed. Uh, because they have that expertise and they often also have just um, very hard, solid expertise on mediation, on negotiation. But I think what is a big, big shame is that this women led peace building is still often viewed as something softer, as something less, less uh, concrete uh, than, than maybe the peacekeeping that we talked about earlier or as, as, you know, the political peace negotiation work. And so women are not treated as experts or in many countries they are not. And even when they are included in in the process, it's often they're included to represent, you know, their the women, right? Their, their perspective, but not as experts in their own right. And this is still a very big gap. And I know in Colombia, and Catherine can I'm sure speak to that much more, um, The the difficulty is also that Women have worked for peace long before the negotiations started, then they were um, luckily included in, in various forms in the peace negotiations. So Colombia became an, an example an example of that in this sense, there are you a know, hundred plus uh, gender provisions or specific provisions related to women's rights and gender equality in the Peace Accord in, in Colombia as a result of that involvement um, and and uh, also perspectives of other minorities. But now there is the implementation stage and uh, Catherine, I don't know how you feel, but speaking to other partners and friends and women peace builders in Colombia, you know, some of they feel like uh, some of them feel like it's the work starting all over again. In a way, uh, we have to be calling and knocking on door and 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 demanding our meaningful inclusion all over again, as we as if we haven't proven time and over again that we have the expertise and that we are needed to make this piece really work, really sustainable.
2: Very difficult in many ways. First, you know, the big layer is that. Uh, The current government after the peace agreement is a government that didn't like the peace agreement uh, at all, but they have to comply because, you know, the the agreement has um, the support from the international community and the UN, so therefore they, they have to comply. But they have put so many obstacles and the speed, although we know that it's a slow process, with this government is even slower. So that is like a big, big issue there, big difficulty. But secondly, for women, it's still so hard, so hard to participate now in in the implementation process. Um, Although it's difficult already for men and women, but also for women to access the spaces that are critical for advancing a little bit uh, is even harder. So, and let alone with the COVID, but the pandemic that everything stops and, you know, perfect excuse for government to stop so many things, the funding and, um, you know, developing some of the implementation processes, structures, funding, everything else. So, um, yes, if you are on the ground, living on the ground in those areas where the conflict happened, and if you are a woman, a victim of the conflict, you know, forcibly displaced, probably with your husband being killed and your children being forcibly recruited by their other uh, illegal groups well of course you are desperate and like this is nothing nothing has happened probably they feel like they're worse than before the peace agreement and some of the women have been saying that probably were in the worst scenario than before Uh, if you live in an urban area in the big cities Obviously the conflict doesn't hit you as same as women in rural areas, but you feel the impact of the economy and how because of the lack of implementation new organized crime groups started to appear and to fill the gaps that the government and the military has has been able to do it. So then also the the insecurity has increased, violence has increased mm-hmm. differently. But has increased. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. some women will feel like it's a trap. We're in a trap. There is no way out. So again, Mm -hmm. that's why so many women say that probably we're worse than before. Um, The Mm -hmm. UN is doing as much as possible. The UN mission is doing as much as possible. The diplomacy, the international cooperation, they're doing as much as possible. But if you have a government that... Um, internally, they do not support the peace process, but externally, they say that they are. It's very difficult to engage in a political conversation here.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. Um,
0: I mean, you both mentioned the pandemic now. Um, in in March 2020, as the pandemic was breaking out, or as its breakout um, was acknowledged, the Secretary General of the UN called for a global ceasefire, um, That, as I'm sure we're all aware, did not happen. Um, And what's come out this week is that in the last year in particular, there has been what the, the HEP, the Transitional Justice Tribunal, are calling a reactivation of the conflict in at least 12 parts of the country. So last year saw the highest levels of violence since the signing of the final peace agreement in terms of massacres, mass force displacements combats between security forces and illegal armed groups and harassment of the security forces, Mm -hmm. as well as an increase in forced recruitment of children and adolescents. Um, So you guys have been doing some fascinating research, which shows that the pandemic has deepened not just some of the root causes of conflict, but particularly the marginalization of women peace builders across the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So what does this look like in practice? What's actually happening?
1: I think there are a few things that are happening and both in Colombia and more broadly, I'll, I'll do my best to speak to both. Um, so first is exactly what you said, right? Increased activity the, of, of armed groups, uh, emergence of, of uh, new armed groups or, or uh, increase in urban violence as well. So emergence of gangs, etc. In Colombia specifically, um, I have heard from, from again, organizations and, and women peace builders we've worked with and also through our research, through the interviews, Indeed, that there the, has the the activity of different um, armed groups has increased. Initially, when with the lockdowns there was, in a way, a vacuum um, of of. Um, um, of uh, control or of any oversight, right? The the government wasn't wasn't uh, there. Uh, an interesting dynamic as well, and I wonder, Catherine, you might have a different perspective on this. But from just the conversations and interviews I've conducted, is that the ceasefire in the specific case of Colombia, there was a short-lived, one-sided uh, ceasefire that was uh, called by the ELN, uh, but it well, it it didn't hold or it it held for. Uh, the month that it was uh, announced for or so so the the, the group claims, uh, but it was very short-lived and it was never reciprocated. And that actually led to the worsening of the already very fragile relationship between the government and the ELN, right? And, and, any possibility of of negotiation because there just wasn't enough mutual trust, right, to establish a a two-sided ceasefire. And so then the accusations kind of flew from one side. Why is the government not responding, not uh, announcing ceasefire on there? And as well from the other side, saying that the group is not holding to their own word and to the ceasefire. So this is one thing that happened, right? The ceasefires in Colombia and elsewhere were usually very short-lived and often actually augmented tensions between the the parties. And it's not to say that it wasn't right to call for a ceasefire. I think it was a critical and a very important call that the Secretary General made. But it's just to show that even a ceasefire, even a temporary um, reduction in violence really requires that building of the relationship, that kind of longer term, you know, groundwork to, to prepare conditions for that. Um, another thing that happened is, of course, that we have so many different and new types of violence that are also emerging, right? Uh, and uh, or, or maybe not only different, but also just violence that was already there, but it's different than armed conflict that is being amplified, such as violence against social leaders. And I know this is something that has been really on the rise in Colombia, but elsewhere in the world as well. Again, the vacuum in terms of the protection, in terms of the uh support uh that that women can access, you know, contributes to that. And then there are the new types of violence as we move more to the cyberspace. And we talked a lot about this with Catherine and in our research, because we did actually also do together work together on a specific research on how how women peace builders are using the digital tools and world, how that's a major, major barrier in Many women also face other barriers. They can't access it, but even those who can access the internet, they might be afraid to use it or they might self-censor a lot on it because they're not sure, you know, who's listening and who might use it against them and how people might react. And the anonymity really increases the kind of radicalization and the, the, the violence that, that women face. So I think the pandemic has really brought in a lot of different dynamics Um in addition to, to then also narrowing the space, of course, for women's participation, because it is more difficult to participate online and because the meetings that are in person now are really, you know, much, much smaller. There wouldn't be larger consultations. And, and so they, they are mostly restricted to the elites, to those already in the know. And the last, last thing I want to say, sorry, one more thing that the pandemic changed, I think is in terms of the money. And so the money has been redirected, and I know this has been the case in Colombia, away from peace processes in the case of Colombia, the implementation of the peace process, the various mechanisms related to that, and the women organizations who need um, who need, uh, the support, the financial support too, um, towards more, more immediate, uh, let's say, health and humanitarian response, which is also necessary. But I think the two should be on the par and happening at the same time, rather than one being amplified at the cost of the other. While, might I add, the military spending around the world continues to grow and continues to increase, even as we see that, you know, arms are not going to keep us safe.
2: I don't know how familiar are your audience, Emily, about the situation in Colombia and the complexities, because it's, it's, it's such complex <laughs> A long, uh, you know, armed conflict that people sometimes felt that because we had signed a, a peace agreement with one group, that was it. But we didn't. But we didn't include the other groups that were already there. So that's why um, Agnieszka was mentioning this ELM. It was which was another group, um, illegal, you know, illegal group that had been operated in the country for many years. So that's the the group that we're still dealing with. But on top of that, as I mentioned before, there were other groups, paramilitary groups, that uh, even though it was a process to demobilize and to disarm these groups in in 2005, um, these groups have reorganized themselves. And they are operating in the rural areas. So the conflict in Colombia is in the rural areas. It's not in the cities. And that's that's why it makes it more difficult to access those areas and to reach the women there. So when the pandemic came, we were in the middle of this already (laughs) complex situation and uh, for the women living in rural areas already, they face difficulties in terms of in- infrastructure, in terms of accessing education, so many layers. So the, you know, the, the way the society as a whole kind of overcome the situation was using the digital world, as Anieska was saying. But women weren't prepared for that. You know, so it was difficult already to have internet access in those remote areas. But also, if you have internet access, you have no access to a computer or to a smartphone. Here in Colombia, many women still use this very old Nokia Black that the battery runs for three or four days. You know, those old ones. So they don't have a smartphone. And if they have, they don't know how to use it. And if they know how to use it, they don't have money to get to buy the data you know and then and then you go on and on and on and on the different layers of difficulties for women to access the virtual world so when it came to participating it was a huge obstacle to continue their participation with you know with the regular meetings with the government the local government um with other women's organizations coming together so it, you know there was a lot of situations there. So few funders Few donors were able to allocate and to be flexible and allocate money to buy some computers, some tablets, some smartphones, and then women's organizations started to teach them how to use it. But you know, it's it's a slow process. And if they and they were able to to reach some meetings, but the women felt that they weren't listened because. You know, not everybody puts the camera on the screen, so they, don't, they didn't know, they weren't sure if the other people were listening to them or what they were saying It was taken into account, it was, they were taken seriously. So I think there was a step back in terms of participation for women in the context of the peace process, because again, the, the women in the rural areas are the most affected ones. And that's why this research was very important to address those issues, like like how this digital world came and to stay, and how women need to start to be trained on using them and Obviously, most of the women rely on their sons or their grandsons to teach them or to, uh, to, the, to to use the to use everything for them to access a meeting you know so there's so many layers there. And they don't have the confidence to talk to a screen. You know, it's so new. It's so new to everybody. So um, I think that's uh, part of the reasons that why this research is so important in terms of showing, you know, um, policymakers of the difficulties for women to participate. It's not as simple. And, you know, it depends on many layers, infrastructure and you know, accessing, education, everything else. Um, now, I think that we are moving to uh, more flexi- flexibility here in Colombia in terms of the pandemic. So meetings started to happen, you know, face to face. And women are started to, you know, come together to their trainings, their meetings. And um, I think the, the hope is the elections that are happening this year. So we're waiting for a change, a big change. So that's why... This year is critical for Colombia and for the peace process. Um, and we need to get this right. We need to get a government that supports the peace agreement, that puts political will into the implementation process, and also to put uh, political will and efforts and funding for women to participate. Uh, there are so many dif- difficulties, even though worldwide, you know, women. Are seen as we participated equally here in Colombia, whatever not as equal as we would like to, and uh, but um, we're still facing lots of obstacles here.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting the the levels of challenge with the digital world, um, from the level of infrastructure to you know online media literacy, um, and then also once women reach the online world uh, the kind of harassment and attacks that women are subject to. Um, you know, I think important to note here, not just that it's, it's local women who, who have more difficulties here, but also Afro-Colombian women and indigenous women are subjected to particularly venomous, aggressive attacks online, um, which is another cause of marginalization, you know, well on top of how good your service is. Um, you know, Colombia is a, is a very multi-ethnic, not necessarily very well integrated place. Um, and I'm wondering how you guys think the pandemic has intersected with, with that particular set of problems in terms of women peace peacebuilders.
1: Um, Catherine, you know best as well, but just from the research we did together as well back in 2020, um, it it's very clear that, uh, like you said, uh, Emily, in particular, indigenous women who already feel uh, you know face so many additional layers of uh discrimination uh marginalization from from like you said targeted attacks and uh, violence this is also replicated online uh and even language barriers right with with those meetings happening um in spanish and and so not the first language or language at some um, uh, indigenous women would not speak or or not feel as comfortable in. And it has been more challenging, especially in the early days of the pandemic. I feel here the technology has moved forward and we have more interpretation options now. But uh, it was more challenging to have interpretation in those meetings uh, in those early days before the simultaneous Zoom interpretation we have today. But even today, you need to have interpreters who are used to that. Uh, software who have good connection this increases the demand on connection so there are those additional even logistical layers in addition to uh the the heightened violence uh, that indigenous women or afro-colombian women might might face um and i might add as well it has because uh, well for women living in remote communities in particular whether they're it's that that's that's many times there's indigenous women but um not always uh and then not only there might also be be uh, Afro Colombian women or, or other women who, who live in those remote areas, that was also challenging to receive uh, support, to receive uh, aid, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, the, the by my, my former organization the global network of Human peace builders and in particular our partners uh, so so some colombian organizations that at nacional de mujeres and the departmental de mujeres uh, in cauca uh, they have again kind of spotted that pretty quickly and what they did was actually work with the indigenous guard uh, so the kind of informal uh, structure right um that that guards and, and and uh, uh, yeah, like a self-protection structure of those uh, indigenous communities that live remotely to to work with them to distribute then those packages. And like I said, the 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 enriched packages that include the sexual and reproductive health uh, products and feminine hy- hygiene products as well. So that's something that women peace builders actually did Right to, to address that issue because, again, they know their communities. They've worked with those Indigenous women. They know how hard it is for them to get to Popayam, for example, in Cauca, to the departmental capital. Uh, so, so that's why kind of it was on their mind that you need a special accommodation to make sure that this help gets to those communities as well.
2: I don't think I have much to say, what Anishka was mentioned but uh, yes, definitely Indigenous women and Afro-Colombian women get the worst part because we are, here in Colombia, is it is still a racist country and very discriminatory to, to Afro-Colombian communities, indigenous communities and, and rural communities. But obviously the worst part is from, from these two particular uh, communities. And they, again, so many layers of discrimination and lack of access to infrastructure, education, uh, jobs, uh, health services, Everything and so this uh, digital world is so new, and we need to invest a lot on on them, but also a lot on, on infrastructure for them to access that equally. And yes, I think there's there's a, that's a challenge here. Also, uh, sadly, uh, Colombia faces a big problems with corruption, and um, last year. I think it was last year, yes, it was a, um, a scandal about the, the ICT ministry um, for um, corruption of huge funding, a huge amount of money lost that was aimed to in, for investment into, um, net, into internet networks for those, uh, you know, remote areas. So it really was a like a scandal here. So, you know, the, it's a mess. And that's why uh, we keep saying that we need to bring women to the important decision making spaces when we talk about meaningful participation, it's not just participation because we are invited. you know we have been invited to meetings, and women have been invited to different meetings, but um when we say it's not taken into account that's why we think that we need to talk about meaningful participation. And then it comes to the big, big meetings, you know, where the high decisions are made. Women are not reaching those spaces. We're we're still being seen as a community level participants, but not high level participants. And um, it's, it's, it's very important to invest on women and to provide funding for women's organizations to build the social fabric that is needed to um, exercise rights in terms of not only the peace agreement, but also to enjoy and to exercise and claim all our rights that are there from from the UN and these international agreements, but are not happening in reality. So that's why I think the voices of women are critical nowadays.
0: I'd love to draw on on you guys' breadth of experience as well. You've worked in many, many, many countries between you as well as individually. Um, Colombia, as a first response to the pandemic, had a, a very strict, very long lockdown, one of the world's longest, um, in, during which people were hanging red flags outside of their homes to signal that they had run out of food. A lot of people completely run out of savings. Um, so I would love to hear how you guys feel that the, the specificities of the Colombian response to the pandemic, which was this very long, very strict lockdown in 2020, um, followed by Pico y Cedula, a kind of 3-4 system where you had four days in, three days out, etc., uh, for a while, compares in its impacts on peace processes to other countries that you've studied. Um in the particular study that I've read of yours, uh, the Philippines, South Sudan, Ukraine, you know, the, the national responses to the pandemic were pretty idiosyncratic. Um, and I'm wondering what the specificities of the Colombian
2: context are.
1: I don't know, Catherine, if you want to go first. I feel
2: bad I always go. But if you'd like, I can also. Okay, no problem. I go first. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. I think part of this long lockdown is the weakness of the health system, how weak it is and how inoperate it is. I know that nobody was ready for this pandemic, nobody, not even the richest countries, but but the lack of, you know, that not having a strong health system, that was the main issue of how here, it took longer to adapt and to prepare for that. Uh, also, I think uh, Colombia continues to be a country that most of the people live day to day. You know, they work in the informal sector. Obviously, they were hit the worst. The worst, and between you know, in in within that sector, obviously, the women, and uh, the consequences have been catastrophic. Uh, government was able to hold that for three months in terms of helping. Uh, people to pay rent and you know uh, the bills at homes and basic stuff but it couldn't hold it any longer but the health system wasn't ready there so the lockdown prolonged and you know there were obviously marches protests against these policies and it's hard to identify who who to blame. You know, I blame the long history of weaknesses on these the different governments that we have had in terms of no prioritizing health services, no prioritizing um, uh, flexibility for, for, for working moms. You know, the whole system has failed. So when we came as an emergency, like the pandemic, it showed the fragility of this country. And the World Bank says that we're a middle-income country. Well, yes, but the distribution of that wealth, it's so <laughs> its so huge that we're the third most unequal country. So we will probably, and I don't want to be pessimistic, but that's what the economists have been saying, that we will see this year like a, the, the impact of that wave of, you know, the, the economy and everything else because um, we weren't ready and the, the impact is seen in the economy. And if you, people don't have jobs and security, I don't want to say that this is the, re- the main reason, but one of the reasons why insecurity has increased, why violence has increased, why people feel so frustrated and there are no way out. So I think that, that is a summary of, of of many reasons and the big consequences that we will continue seeing it's um you know and even though now with the fourth way and the the this new variant which is the uh, uh, oh, I forgot that <laughs> the new variant of the virus we don't have any restrictions omicron. now omicron thank you we don't have any restrictions, so now it's the whole extreme. We don't have any restrictions, so now people think because they got vaccines. So not everybody, but the people who got vaccines, you know, we take it easy on this new wave. But now hospitals um, and pe- and then more people, more infected, and different, you know, variants, and people dealing with this and um, contagious and. I don't know, I just think that um, we don't plan ahead. We just respond to immediate issues, and that's why we keep um, failing and failing as a country. But Aneska, I don't know what is your, is your view on this.
1: No, I think exactly what you, you couldn't have said it better, and just you asked Emily a little bit about the comparison with the other countries in this study and, and beyond, um I mean, there are many similarities, uh, right? In the sense that, um, I think in most countries, I can I can safely say in, in most countries in the. Uh, world, right? The, the social services and the health services are still really underfunded. They're not as, as well funded as they should be. And that's particularly the case for, uh, countries that have been experiencing conflict, that have experienced conflict in their recent history. Why? Both because health structures, uh, health infrastructure can be targeted and are often targeted, uh, during conflict, but also because when there is conflict, um, governments tend not to prioritize those other expenses, so this is this long-term debt to pay that Catherine is talking about. The fact that there aren't, uh, you know, the the uh, appropriate structures and policies to support. Um, in terms of the length of the lockdown, that has really varied from country to country. And, you know, Ukraine, like a lot of Eastern uh, Europe, like my country, Poland as well, has kind of waited a little, right, to to introduce those lockdowns. People were very reluctant to, to put that in place. Um, uh, and, and the government has been reluctant too. Uh, so the lockdowns were shorter in nature, right, or have been compared to... Some other places. Uh, but the impacts are often very much the same. It's often, it's always the women who work in, who live in the rural areas, in the remote areas, they're not able to access, for example, in Ukraine at some point. There wasn't a kind of countrywide lockdown, but the public transportation was not working, right? So for women living in villages, there was a you know virtual lockdown because they couldn't get to their job in a you know major town where they normally get to by bus or or they couldn't get to meetings that are happening there, etc. So, so there were the similarities, but one thing I wanted to say, building on what Catherine said, is just I think in a really important, and that is a difference, right? Different countries dealt with it differently to different extents. I, I do you think there is a trend, is how those lockdowns are imposed as well, right? And the how is both regarding what Catherine was saying is what comes with the lockdown in terms of the support, uh, in terms of the, the, the um, support to people who lost their income, etc., cetera, to childcare support, etc., that comes from the government. But the second one, who imposes it? And to what extent are we using this over-militarized, very basket and right logic to be imposing the lockdown with the police, with the use of, of unfortunately, in some contexts, uh, violence and 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 arms. And that's something we have seen. I don't know, you know, in Colombia, I think to, to a limited extent, or to some extent uh, in other countries, uh, uh, to, to, to a larger extent as well. And that has been a big problem. And that's a conversation that we need to have. Why are we still believing that weapons are going to, to solve our problem, right? Impose this uh, this lockdown and get rid of this pandemic. And as a result, still investing more in this military, in those security services, than in the healthcare and social services that are really needed. Totally. So I, I think
0: probably the big question here is is impact. Long-term, what kind of impacts are we looking at in Colombia?
2: I think there are different levels of impacts, and depending on what happens this year as well with the new government, also we will see more clarity of what impacts can we start seeing from now. So in terms of the social problems from, you know, from from the pandemic, we probably will continue seeing violence, insecurity in, in the big cities. Um... Displacement for displacement, but not just because of the conflict, but economic displacement. So, people from the rural areas, or or you know, from different sectors, moving to the big cities. of so probably the increase of poverty in the poverty line here. So that will create more pressure to government to respond to to this, like uh, providing services, education, health services, everything for for a wider group of, of under the poverty line. And again, brains insecurity and as Agnieszka was saying, if we continue responding to insecurity with with the military, with the police, we will create like a, another cycle of violence, Of because people will start protesting as they did two years ago, protesting against these policies. So... Um, uh, now we are waiting to see what happens this year with a new government, with new Congress, new everything, <laughs> and and how we're going to adapt to that. But I guess that will create more pressure to the implementation of the peace agreement. You know, it will be like a roller coaster because those policies will reflect on the funding and what happens on the ground in terms of um providing the structures that are needed in terms to prevent future armed um, conflicts. And everything has to do with development. everything has to do with equality, everything has to do with equal political participation. Um, so yes, we might need probably more internal dialogue to you know women at the forefront, to hold communities together, more pressure to women. So therefore we need more funding to women and women's organizations. We need probably international support for that because I don't think we we need quick solutions, but we need quick solutions that provide longer <laughs> sustainability. And I think that our government keep failing to understand this. And that's why women can bring that new aspect to the table. So the impacts, Emily, for your questions, will will vary, but they are all intertwined, and it will depend a lot on what happens this year. Yeah, that's such a strong note to end on, Catherine. I think
1: you know, it, maybe just to add, you know, we have there have been so many just very. Really heartbreaking impacts of this pandemic in Colombia and around the world. And we've talked about them here, but I do think there is also a window of opportunity, right? Those issues that previously were, you know, the domain of a very narrow group of feminist, you know, activists, right. Talking about valuing unpaid care work that women do at the household, talking about, you know, shifting funds, right. From, 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 military, towards social services, towards peace, Uh, they're becoming more mainstream. And in a way, pandemic brought them to the mainstream. And, And it's an important moment to leverage that, right? They're becoming mainstream within the UN, within various governments, including in Colombia. But to leverage that, like Catherine said, it's the meaningful participation. We've seen that in every crisis, if the process does not meaningfully include women and diverse women at that, right? So so like you said earlier, indigenous women, Afro-Colombian women, rural women, right? Campesinas and others. If it doesn't include other marginalized groups, it's just not going to be an effective process. So the question is, you know, how hard are we going to try are we as the international community, you know, donors, but but also um, are our governments going to invest in women because participating in consultative processes is, is work, right? Is something you need to do mobilizing, you need to do organizing all of that costs, right? Is this money going to be there where the mouth is? Uh, is the political will uh, going to be there? And our women, we started with that. Are, are they going to be... Seen as experts, recognized as the experts that they are, rather than just you know a one-off consultation with, with with the token woman, right? So that so that we can say that we've ticked uh, that box, but really leveraging this expertise because, like I said, those discussions are now coming to the to the mainstream. Women have been having them for decades.
0: That's an amazing note to end on. I think so. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine and Agneska. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll be back. Next week with another episode of Columbia Calling.